0: Tonight, straight from the source, not so fast, special counsel Jack Smith denied as Donald Trump gets something he very much wanted from the Supreme Court. Will his federal election subversion trial be delayed and by how long? Also tonight, breaking point at the border, an unprecedented surge, a government overwhelmed and the private militias now taking it upon themselves to patrol the border. And as America pushes to bring hostages home from Gaza, Russia, Iran, and Venezuela, I'll talk to a wife who is pleading for her husband's safe return from Afghanistan. He's one of three Americans being held by the Taliban. Caitlin Collins is off tonight. I'm Brianna Keeler, and this is The Source. A win for former President Trump, at least for now, with the Supreme Court denying special counsel Jack Smith's urgent request to put the issue of Trump's claim of presidential immunity on the fast track. A one sentence order denied. No explanation, no notation of whether any justices dissented. And here's what this means. The nine justices will not bypass the D.C. appeals court to decide whether Trump can be prosecuted for alleged crimes committed while in office. Arguments are set to begin in that court in just over two weeks. The case is expected to ultimately end up at the Supreme Court, just not yet. Still, this is a victory for Trump, who has been trying to delay all his trials until after the election. The immunity question must be settled before his federal trial for allegedly trying to overturn the election can begin. It's on the calendar for March 4th, right before Super Tuesday, but that date now very much in doubt. And as this case heads back to the appeals court, I'm joined by retired Judge J. Michael Luddig, who spent 15 years as one of the country's most prominent figures on the federal appeals bench. or a recall that he testified before the January 6th committee last year. He advised uh, former Vice President Pence that he did not have the authority to interfere with the certification. Of electoral votes, uh, sir. Thank you so much for being with us uh, tonight—a key night here. Why do you think the court chose not to hear the case right now?
1: Thank you for having me with you tonight, uh, Brianna. Uh, the, today's uh, perfunctory percurium denial of Jack Smith's uh, motion to expedite it, it is uh, not a victory for the former president, nor a defeat for for Jack Smith. Uh, this was just a, a, a typical decision uh, that the, the Supreme Court made not to expedite uh, consideration. Uh, the Supreme Court is, is fully capable of, of expediting uh, consideration of, of any matter where it concludes that expeditiousness is necessary. Uh, in this instance today, uh, it's clear that, that the Supreme Court uh, decided that expeditious review of the immunity question simply was not necessary. It's of surpassing and obvious importance uh, to uh, the American voters to know before they vote in November of 2024 whether the former president, the presumptive uh, Republican nominee today, uh, will have been uh, convicted by a jury of peers of the criminal offenses uh, for which he has been charged by by the United States. The the Supreme Court understands the surpassing importance uh, of of a uh, verdict in that trial before the voters of America vote in November. Sir, they sir concluded I, that Sir
0: Can I just ask still you I, I do just want to ask you, is, isn't a delay, though, something, and I hear what you're saying, this isn't uh, on the merits, but doesn't a delay work in the favor of the former president when he is wanting to push everything uh, back so that it can hopefully happen after the election?
1: That's what I was just about to explain, Brianna. Uh, there is not, as of today, a delay in the March trial that's been scheduled. Now, here's what's happened, and here's how what's going to happen between now and then. The Supreme Court denied the motion to expedite. We, The Supreme Court doesn't give reasons for such a decision, and it did not today. But it's fairly obvious to me and to others who follow the Supreme Court and the federal courts in general that the Supreme Court concluded that it would allow the D.C. Circuit to address the immunity question first and it will do so expeditiously. The Supreme Court of the United States knows that as well. So the, Supreme, uh, the, uh, the D.C. Circuit from which the appeal of the district court's decision denying immunity is, has already scheduled arguments on the immunity question in early January. Yes, Uh, but are are you thinking that that won't affect the March 4th
0: schedule? You think that's not going to push that back?
1: I do not. Hmm. There's every reason to believe that the D.C. Circuit... Will, will expeditiously address the issue and it will render an opinion, I believe, not likely longer than February and perhaps even earlier. At that point, the, the, the losing party, whether it's the government or the former president, could appeal again to the Supreme Court of the United States. And now, for example, If the former president were to lose in the D.C. Circuit, that is, if the D.C. Circuit were to hold, as did the district court, that the president is not entitled to absolute immunity from prosecution for these criminal offenses, then it would be an option for the Supreme Court of the United States to deny review of that uh, D.C. Circuit opinion. Mm -hmm. On a timeline that I've suggested that is reasonable and possible, it's it's entirely uh, possible that the March trial would not have to be delayed at all, but in all events, not delayed long, certainly no longer than one to two months, so that the trial would, in all events, begin sometime near the summer of 2024, Uh, five, six months before the election of 2024.
0: Uh, And Judge, certainly uh, that will be interesting to see if that is what happens. We'll continue the conversation with you. Judge Ludig, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, Brianna.
0: I want to bring in retired California Superior Court Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell and former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers. Um, To both of you, Judge, you first. What do you think about that? Do you think that ultimately this going to the appeals court as was planned will mean that there is not a delay in ultimately this trial for election subversion at the federal level?
2: Well, Brianna, I have to respectfully disagree with Judge Luddick. Uh, I am flabbergasted that the court did not find this case to be of such exceptional importance to allow an expedited review, especially since 2019, the Supreme Court has agreed to expedite hearings 19 times. So what this will mean is that there's oral argument January 9th, 2024, before a three-judge, all-female panel on the D.C. Circuit. Whoever loses has a right to request a rehearing before the full court, all eleven justices at on the DC circuit. Well, that's going to take time. They have to set a briefing schedule and determine when those oral arguments will happen. And this whole time that this happens, the proceedings before Judge Chutkin are stayed, meaning mm-hmm. nothing can happen. No questionnaires sent out to jurors, absolutely nothing. So when this whole process gets done, the three judge panel, then the full court on Bonk a the French meaning on the bench, 11 judges, and all the briefing schedule, of course the hearing is going to get delayed. There is no question. And finally, there is no guarantee that there will be an en banc hearing, even all the justices, because the federal rules say that an en banc hearing is not favored and will only be ordered if, and this is the language from the statute, if the case fits the exceptional importance criteria. This is exceptionally important, and I believe there will be the full hearing, so there's going to be a lot of delay here. Uh, the things will move, and, and I will just say, finally, good news. It's likely that the full court of the D.C. Circuit will rule against Donald Trump and find that he's not immune from prosecution. I think then the U.S. Supreme Court would then decline to wade into this, refuse to hear the appeal, yeah. in which case the decision of the D.C. Circuit stands Jack Smith and anybody else who has a criminal case against Trump can have at it.
0: Yeah, you and Judge Ludwig may agree on that point there, uh, Judge. Jen, what do you think, especially considering the court, to, to Judge Cordell's point here, the judge did agree to grant cert on an expedited schedule for a number of issues, from President Biden's student loan forgiveness program to one of these key affirmative action cases, which we, we certainly know how those I- issues went here. What did you think about this outcome and how much this could delay things?
2: Yeah, I thought it was likely that they would take the appeal now, so I was a little surprised that they didn't. I think they didn't because the argument is so soon, two and a half weeks away. I kind of come down somewhere in the middle, I have to say, of the two distinguished judges here. So I'm the only one without judicial experience, so take it for what it's worth. But, you know, I think that... um, that when it's heard by the D.C. Circuit, they will hear it very quickly. I think that they can quickly do the en banc process if Trump seeks that, which I think he will. And then I think the Supreme Court will take it up. So I do anticipate certainly a delay. And I don't think we'll start trial on March 4th. On the other hand, I'm hoping that if each court moves quickly, as they certainly can, that it won't be delayed beyond a couple of months or so.
0: And Judge, just to your point earlier, we talk about this delay being a victory for Donald Trump, but and correct me if I'm hearing you uh, wrongly, but it sounds like you're saying even though this refusal uh, is out there, it doesn't actually speak to the actual strength of the substance of Trump's claims, in your opinion.
2: You're exactly right, Brianna. This was not a decision based on the merits. Remember, these are procedures that are happening now. So the court made a decision not to take it up at this point, uh, and they may never take it up. There, That is a possible scenario, in which case it all gets decided in the D.C. Circuit.
0: Uh, Judge, Jen, thank you so much to both of you for being with us this evening, and happy holidays.
2: Same to Thanks, you. Brianna, you too.
0: We're 24 days only. Can you believe that from the first contest in the 2024 primary race? So what will this all mean come election time? We'll have the political implications ahead. Plus, Christmas is coming. Is there already proof of it? As you look here to the skies, (laughs) we'll have this story coming up.
1: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's Chief Medical Correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo.
3: It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach.
1: It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And we're back now with the Supreme Court slamming the door on special counsel Jack Smith's gamble, rejecting an urgent appeal and quite possibly delaying the federal election interference case against Donald Trump. The high court responding to Smith's request with a single sentence denying the special counsel's hope for this uh, expedited ruling on Trump's claims of presidential immunity. And then tonight, the former president's legal woes are his GOP rival's frustrations. Just listen to Ron DeSantis here.
4: I wish Trump hadn't been indicted on any of this stuff. It distorted the primary. Because it's helped him? Is that what you're saying? It's both that, but then it also is just crowded out, I think, so much other stuff, and it's sucked out a lot of oxygen.
0: Joining me now is former special assistant to President George W. Bush and CNN senior political commentator Scott Jennings. All right, Scott, how do you see this decision through a political lens here?
4: Well, if it does delay the March 4th trial date, I heard some disagreement on that earlier, but if it does, it certainly pushes it back closer to maybe when the Republican National Convention is going on, closer to Election Day. And then I think you get into questions of whether you can even have a trial at that point uh, out of fairness to the election if Trump is the nominee. The fascination with March the 4th, of course, is that the next day is Super Tuesday, March the 5th. And so the, the specter of this happening you know, right before and during the most pivotal month uh, for delegate collection in the Republican primary uh, had had a lot of folks talking. So just as a technical, functional matter, if this thing gets delayed and Trump uh, doesn't have to deal with it while he's out finishing up the primary in March, that's probably a good thing for him.
0: Yeah, certainly. Maybe Judge Ludwig is right, but he's certainly in the minority thinking that this isn't going to delay this federal election subversion trial. You hear Ron DeSantis there lamenting the oxygen that this is all sucked out of the room. Is he just, you know, saying the obvious or is he laying the groundwork for a potential loss?
4: Well, look at Ron DeSantis's lived experience. You know, go back to November of 2022. He steamrolls to re-election in Florida. People are unhappy with Trump. There's a thought that maybe he should just get into the presidential race and go ahead and take over the party. He was leading Trump in the national polls. He waited and waited and waited until the following May. And what happened in the intervening period? Donald Trump started getting in legal trouble and Republicans got mad and they rallied to Trump's side. By the time DeSantis got into this thing, Trump had already recoagulated himself and, and collected himself and his campaign uh, was well on its way. So I think as he, if he does lose this race and he looks back on it, he'll look at that period and wonder what might have been, you know, what if he had gotten into the race earlier, what if he had not given Trump all that space? And of course, what if these indictments hadn't come along to put the jet fuel into Trump's campaign?
0: Yeah. And look, certainly he can't control the indictments. There are so many people watching, I think what's happening today. And you know, it's not just incremental because it speaks to this idea of a delay really potentially impacting the political landscape. Is this all going to play out before the election? You have critics of Trump's who really worry that if this is not decided before the election, he potentially wins. He goes into the White House. They've raised concerns that he is going to maybe have an attorney general who dismisses all of this. Maybe he would go ahead and pardon himself. That is certainly something you hear people talk about. What do you say to that?
4: Well, I think if he gets elected president, the federal cases go away. He'll just have the Justice Department. Uh, drop the cases now. The state cases, I guess, are a, a different matter. But as far as the federal issues, yeah, if they're still going on, I think I think they would just cease to exist at at that moment. I personally think the American people want to see this resolved before the election. I do still believe there's a cohort of voters, some Republicans, some independents uh, out there who won't want to vote for a convicted felon, and they're watching to see what happens in these trials. And I also think, frankly, Donald Trump deserves a chance to clear his name. I mean, he's been accused of. Pretty serious stuff, not only uh, in the Jack Smith case uh, around January 6th, but also in the documents case. You know, my view from the beginning of this is Donald Trump also deserves a chance to clear his name if he can in a court of law and not just fight this out in the court of public opinion. So I think he should clear his name. I think the prosecutor should have a chance to clear their case. But mostly, I just think the American people should know uh, whether or not they're about to cast their ballot for a convicted felon or possibly for someone who just got acquitted of all these things they've heard that he was accused of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Have there ever been any more interested parties than this in the outcome of a legal case? Um, I I do want to turn now to the Detroit News report on this recorded phone conversation uh, with Donald Trump and local election officials there, and also RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel, where they're pressuring these officials not to certify the 2020 election results in the state. Here is what George Bush's, George W. Bush's former deputy chief of staff, Karl Rove, said about this earlier.
4: I think the former president's got a problem with this. They had voted to certify the election. He attempted to to force them to change their decision, which they tried to do. Uh, I think this is what we would call election interference.
0: What do you think? Do you think this is any different than some of the other conversations we've seen?
4: Uh, It doesn't seem all that different to me. It's just, of course, happening in a different jurisdiction. And although I'm not totally familiar with Michigan election law and the way Carl is laying it out, uh, if there is an interference statute or if there is a law that uh, he could be violating, I have no doubt the people in Michigan are going to be looking into that in light of this evidence. And of course, it just stacks on top of what he's already facing in Georgia and the other cases. The only question I would have is, how long does it take? I mean, that's the thing with Trump. All the things that have happened since the election, since January the 6th. It has taken an extraordinary amount of time to get any of these things to the brink of trial. And even today now in the news, uh, we see the probable delay uh, of a trial uh, regarding something that happened on January 6, 2021. So e- even if they get moving on that in Michigan, you just wonder, would, would that case ever even come to fruition before November uh, where, uh, when it looks like a lot of the other cases have been so slow?
0: Yeah, no, it's a really good point. Scott, great to have you and happy holidays to you.
4: Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and thank you for having me tonight.
0: Of course, Merry Christmas to you as well. And ahead, a new record surge of migrants at the border, making an already urgent crisis even worse. Some citizen militias are now stepping in where the government is overrun. We have an inside look at that effort next. Federal authorities say they are encountering unprecedented numbers of migrants at the southern border. Recently, more than 10,000 people have unlawfully crossed in from Mexico every day. That reality, coupled with extremist rhetoric on the right, is inspiring some civilians to take action inspiring some even to take up arms. The L.A. Times has a new report out on one of these groups calling themselves the Arizona Border Recon, and they patrol a small fraction of the border just west of Nogales, Arizona. My next guest, the L.A. Times reporter on this story, spoke to the group's leader, Tim Foley. He's a former Army member, recruiting volunteers from all over the country. Let's listen.
5: (laughs) Foley and his group may look official with their camo and guns, but they're not affiliated with Border Patrol or any other law enforcement agency. They don't have the authority to detain anyone, but they use their presence to intimidate people into stopping.
0: Keegan Hamilton is the criminal justice editor for the L.A. Times, and he's with us now. Uh, Keegan, really interesting report here. You have reported that these groups, they aren't new. There are other anti-government militias doing the same thing in Texas and other parts of Arizona. But you've said what is new is the way that they seem to be taking this to new extremes. Can you explain that?
5: Yeah, I think uh, from what I saw when I was out there, the these groups are attracting people from all over the United States. I mean, the leader of Arizona Border Recon lives in Arizona, near the border, uh, but some of the the volunteers who were with him uh, during the course of our reporting were from Connecticut, California, Idaho, Oregon, uh, who were coming out for like a week or so at a time to go out and do these patrols. Uh, And the fact that he can, you know, attract, have, have that kind of reach is one thing, and I think. This also has attracted uh, more of the conspiratorial minded groups like QAnon conspiracies and also some of the uh, more well-known extremist groups like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers have also sort of turned their focus to the border and have even said that uh, their Arizona Border Recon's leader said that they spoke uh, with the leader of the Oath Keepers. So I think you can see just how powerful the rhetoric around the border is to attract uh, folks like this.
0: And look whether or not they are vigilante heroes or villains really depends on who you ask. I know you spoke to one couple who are cattle ranchers along Foley's camp. I want to play a bit of that exchange
5: a lot of people consider what Tim Foley and his guys are doing out there vigilanteism like they're taking the law into their own hands. do you agree
2: with that No why not majority of what they do like the majority of what the Border Patrol does is be a first-rate rescue squad.
0: But they're not the Border Patrol, right? And they look so much like the military. I mean, they're kitted out like the military. You could mistake them for that. What's the flip side compared to what that couple said?
5: I mean, we also spoke to uh, some humanitarian groups that are putting out you know, water in the desert uh, to try to prevent migrant deaths when people get lost out there. And they've complained of harassment and their uh, water tanks being shot and stabbed and things of that nature. And just generally around these areas uh, with some locals, you get a sense of like this just feels dangerous. Like there are people out there patrolling with guns, even law enforcement uh, who su- generally supports their activities kind of acknowledge like it's tough to tell who the good guys are and who the bad guys are when you have uh, you know, these guys in full camo gear uh, with rifles uh, out there doing their thing.
0: And there have been deadly incidents in the past, right? I mean, that's one of the sort of specters that hangs over all of this.
5: Yeah, this, this community, Arivaca, that is is down near the border uh, and where the leader of this group is based, had a horrible uh, double murder uh, many years back involving members of a, a different uh, border group, the, the Minutemen. And I think that the fact that this has been going on for over a decade now really speaks to the enduring nature of this border problem like every year it seems like it's a new crisis that's worse than it's ever been and that that sentiment i think is what has provoked such extremism and has drawn people um, from such disparate walks of life in every corner of the country to come out and you know take up arms and put on camo and do these patrols
0: keegan are they doing anything wrong i mean is there any recourse that the government has to enforce what their concerns are about this going awry you
5: know we spoke to the border patrol about this and essentially what they said is look we welcome any sort of tips or intelligence that any concerned citizen will pass along and that's what you know arizona border recon says they do if they encounter something they call it in uh on the other hand, the Border Patrol also said, look, we don't want anyone out here trying to detain migrants. That's against the law. It, you can't stop someone against your will. They don't have the authority to do that.
0: In the course of your investigation, you spoke to migrants who are crossing the border and also coyotes who are helping them cross. What can you tell us about who these people are?
5: You know, I think there's there's into two, two camps. One is people who are asylum seekers, like the ones you're seeing here. Uh, folks who are really desperate, uh, fleeing their country because of violence, that's of extortion, uh, things of that nature. And they're generally surrendering at, at ports of entry and trying to go through the, the system that exists, the legal process of claiming asylum. The other camp is, is people who are trying to sneak across the border, uh, sometimes wearing full camouflage outfits. And, you know, to hear the extremists tell it, it is those are all criminals or drug smugglers the folks that we encountered were honestly just trying to go find work. Uh, One of them was uh, a roofer who had worked in Southern California and said he could make 10 times more supporting his family working in California than he could in Mexico.
0: Well, Keegan, it's uh, a great report and quite an investment of time and effort. We appreciate you talking about it with us. Thank you.
5: My pleasure. Thanks.
0: Problems at the border are only piling up for Washington. So what are lawmakers going to do? Let's get insight from Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California to talk about this. Uh, Congressman, you hear Keegan's report there. Are you worried about this phenomenon of civilians arming up and taking matters into their own hands, feeling that the government isn't doing what it needs to do?
3: Brianna, I am worried. And the reason that this is happening is we don't have the funding for border patrol agents. We don't have the funding for immigration judges. We don't have the funding for court hearings. The Congress, when we were in control as a Democratic party, passed that. President Biden has called for that. That's really what it will take to have a solution.
0: So there is still no deal to address border security or foreign war aid. And the fact is, you have a divided Congress, so that's what you're dealing with right now. Republicans have proposed some pretty tough measures, including limiting asylum, limiting who can be released on parole. What are Democrats willing to compromise on? Because that's just the reality is that you're going to have to.
3: Well, we're willing to compromise on issues like giving more funding for border uh, patrol, for more technology to secure our borders. but we're not going to compromise on getting rid of parole. I mean, parole has been used to get refugees uh, from Ukraine, from Afghanistan, uh, from war-torn countries. And by the way, if you get rid of parole, you're just putting more pressure actually of people coming to the border. The president has used parole for an orderly process from people fleeing Venezuela. If that wasn't there, those folks from Venezuela would be coming to the border. So we're for rational solutions, but not for things that just eliminate asylum altogether or parole.
0: President Biden has come under increasing criticism from Democratic leaders across the country. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says he's not getting enough funding for the city. Illinois' governor says Biden hasn't done enough to deal with Republican governors who are sending migrants to Chicago. What does the president need to do to address their concerns?
3: i think some of that criticism on the president is unfair from the illinois governor or new york mayor i mean they should be criticizing congress i mean the president can't start appropriation bills he needs the funding he has an executive order where he said we want to tighten the border security he said let's have people apply before they come to the border uh he has really tried to go to congress and give us funding for the judges and the border patrol agents but it's Congress that part of the body of government that I'm part of that hasn't worked. And I think that's where the blame needs to be.
0: Do you think what we're seeing at the border right now is what you describe as a breaking point?
3: I do think it's a crisis, Brianna, but I think we have to understand what's causing the crisis. First of all, countries overseas haven't recovered as fast uh, uh, from the pandemic. You have great political instability in places like Venezuela. You have uh, climate refugees. You have more outbreak of violence. And then we need to be thoughtful about how to address it. And it starts with securing our borders, but also having a actual rational system uh, for asylum. The president has called for that. The problem is people want to politicize this just by showing images at the border. I rather we work towards a solution that secures the border, but is humane.
0: Congressman, great to have you this evening. Thanks for being with us.
3: Thank you. Happy holidays.
0: You too, sir. All right, tonight, Israel, indicating that it's expanding the military operation in Gaza as we're learning about hundreds of 2,000-pound bombs dropped in the first month of the war. Israel is bombarding Gaza at a level not seen since Vietnam. That is how a former U.S. defense official and U.N. war crimes investigator describes the first month of strikes on Gaza. CNN and AI company, uh, and an AI company analyzed satellite images of Gaza. And specifically, we're talking about 2,000 pound bombs, bombs likely made by America. That is four times bigger than what the U.S. was dropping on ISIS in Mosul, Iraq. The kill zone, a circle that can span 1,200 feet, an area equal to 75 football fields. Each of the red circles on this map is just one, of those craters you just saw. This is an area where more than two million people live. And this is the scene on the ground after one of those bombs hits in Gaza. Israeli officials have argued that heavy munitions are necessary to eliminate Hamas, which is known to take refuge in residential areas, of course, but the level of bombardment raises questions about claims Israeli officials have been making since the war began. We are doing everything in our power to reduce any
5: loss of innocent life. We're taking extraordinary measures to try to limit uh, civilian
4: casualties.
0: And choose specific munitions for certain Hamas targets to avoid unnecessary damage. I'm joined now by retired U.S. Army Major General James spider Um General, it's really amazing to see this analysis done on this level. The Israelis have often drawn the comparison to the U.S. fight against ISIS. How does this compare to the type of urban fighting we saw there?
6: Well, clearly in Gaza, Brianna, that is so densely packed. It's unlike the fight that we had in Fallujah. It's unlike the, fa- the fight that, that took place in Mosul, in Erbil. Gaza is just vertical as well as incredibly narrowly packed. So the results of the strikes you can see in front of you. Um, I can't get to the rationale that the Israelis are using, but the numbers that you described are being revealed right here in terms of the damage that's taken place. And I I would also say, you know, the numbers in terms of the KIA as a result of this, of this fighting, we have to be a little bit skeptical of, but clearly the numbers are quite staggering.
0: Yeah. Those numbers, those uh, Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health numbers, there may be some issues with them, but they do grossly represent what we see. And we're also seeing Uh, pictures, of course. So we do have to note that. There are international organizations who look at those numbers and say this is reflective of what's going on on the ground. Talk to us a little bit about how Hamas's tunnels are working with Israel using these weapons, specifically because a lot of these, we understand, are likely dumb bombs. They're not bunker-busting bombs, we expect, although they may be able to penetrate down somewhat, but maybe not enough to get to those tunnels.
6: Yeah, I think that's it, Brianna. The, what I think the Israelis were doing up front was probably a twofold mission, which is to try to go after the command and control infrastructure of Hamas, which means their ammunition, the locations where they conduct their operations, or at least where they plan and where leadership tends to uh, get together. Because you, as you know, they got offline. They weren't using their cyber capabilities or online capabilities so they had runners so you had to get folks together in order to do your planning. That was number one. Number two is I think the Israelis also thought that they'd get some deep penetration as a result of the 2,000 pounders that would then invalidate or at least put at risk for Hamas to use the tunnels. But as we've seen as a result of the fight, the Israelis have had to go into those tunnels. Maybe they were hoping a prior that they didn't have to go into those tunnels, but based on battle damage assessment, they had to put troops into those tunnels, and that's what they were probably hoping to avoid. But when you look at this tunnel architecture, I mean, these are very, very deeply buried in excess of 150 feet underground. A, 200, a two hundred, a 2,000-pounder might be able to have success, maybe not.
0: When you look at why Israel is doing this, I mean, there's different possibilities. Um, they're doing it why? because of, of why they say they're doing it, Are they doing this with disregard for civilian life? Are they doing this to put pressure on Hamas by putting pressure on civilians? What is your analysis of that as you look at this damage?
6: I think the time element is the one thing among your options that you described, and it's probably a combination of all of those. I think Israel was hoping to achieve their desired end state, which was the destruction of the Hamas leadership and the war fighting, the terror capability and capacity that they've demonstrated. And so they were trying to get as much damage done as, it, along the lines of achieving that objective in the shortest amount of time. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. So there probably was a decision when you go back to the rack and you say, what type of munitions do we want to use on this particular target? What type of damage can we achieve in terms of getting closer to that objective? I'm sure the time horizon was was one of those priority objectives and considerations that they um, that they use for their decisions.
0: Yeah, certainly the eradicating ISIS took a while. uh, And that's something that goes into uh, this as a factor. Uh, General spider Marks, great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brianna. As the fight goes on to free hostages held by Hamas, there's a lesser known struggle to bring home Americans held by the Taliban in Afghanistan. At least three Americans there held in captivity for more than a year. The wife of one of them is here next. The wife of an American held hostage by the Taliban in Afghanistan for more than a year is pleading for his release. Ryan Corbett is one of at least three American hostages held by the Taliban. Ryan and his family lived in Afghanistan for more than a decade. He had a small business and he worked with NGOs to help Afghans start their own businesses. But the family evacuated when Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. But then Ryan returned several months later for a business trip and then again in August of 2022. But the Taliban detained him wrongfully according to the State Department. For months his wife Anna has heard little on efforts to bring him home and now she is taking matters into her own hands taking the fight to lawmakers herself.
7: He is held in solitary confinement for weeks at a time. We recently learned that Ryan has been fainting and experiencing seizures. He is often threatened with physical harm. He is told by his captors that he is forgotten and that his country doesn't care about him. And why wouldn't he believe it when other Westerners have come and gone so much faster than he?
0: Anna Corbett is joining us now. And Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. We hear your voice there, and what you were going through is clearly unbearable. Your family was asked to remain silent on Ryan's captivity for his safety. You've said your children lied to their friends about where their dad is. Tell us how you came to the decision that that way is not working.
7: I realized that 16 months is too long for this to go on, and I was very concerned about his health. I heard reports from others who had been detained with him that he was not doing well, and it was so scary to realize that. And I was desperate to do whatever I could to get him home. He doesn't have a voice right now, but I have a voice. I have an opportunity to speak out for him, and I want to do everything I can to get him home alive.
0: You actually spoke with him a couple weeks ago. Can you tell us? And admittedly, he's in Taliban custody. I know we have to keep that uh, in mind here, but what was he able to tell you?
7: It was great to hear his voice. It was really hard to tell how he's truly doing. He reported um, ringing, ringing in his ears and his vision declining, which was really shocking um, because he left the States when he was 39 perfectly healthy. And now I've heard reports of fainting and him not coping well. And so. He was happy to hear how the children are doing. I have three kids who are now 13, 16 and 18. And I was also able to share with him that I'm working very hard for his release. I told him I was actually in DC when he called and had just spoken with the secretary and was able to give him some hopes. So I was so thankful and I was thankful to see encouragement Based on my going public, that I got another call because I had only had one call before that.
0: Yeah, that hope will be very encouraging for him, and he'll be able to continue on, I think, with some of that. What are US officials telling you, and what are the families of other wrongfully detained Americans telling you?
7: It's a really challenging situation right now. Um, I actually just spoke with officials at National Security Council this afternoon. Um, I had the opportunity to hear an update from Deputy uh, Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer in November, and I've been asking to meet with uh, Uh, national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, and I'm hoping to have that opportunity in January. It's really tough because there are so many priorities for the U.S. government, but the president and Secretary Blinken and many others have said that is their top priority. And so I am fighting for that. I'm fighting for Ryan because I want him back alive and I understand that conversations are important to continue to take place, but Ryan has not been seen in almost a year and I'm really worried about him and I need the government to truly prioritize bringing him home.
0: Well, Anna, we will keep telling Ryan's story and we appreciate you joining us tonight.
7: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. We'll be right back.